Well, what I'd realised was, I, I think um, I had to hoodwink myself into writing this book because if I'd said to myself, right, here's what we're doing, we're going to write a book, I'd be so detached from and so frightened by what that would mean and that the mechanics of doing that, the time and space that you require to do so, so, so it just seems so impossible or I kind of managed to get those means, but they were so untenable that I had to pretend I wasn't writing it because then the pressure would be too much, you know? to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Marvereen Cole and today I'm excited to introduce two of our debut writers to you. Joe Hamyer, author of Three Rooms and Anna Glendening, author of An Experiment in Leisure. Both of their novels present tender portraits of youth and offer piercing insights into the political, cultural and economic fault lines dividing Britain today. Joe Hamyer's Three Rooms begins with the protagonist, a young woman, moving to university accommodation and starting a job as a research assistant at Oxford. Here, living and working in the spaces that have birthed the country's leaders, she's both insider and outsider, and she simply cannot shake the feeling that real life is happening elsewhere. The second book that we're talking about today is Anna Glendening's An Experiment in Leisure, which follows the story of Grace, who swapped West Yorkshire for London, her accent carefully edited and with a Cambridge degree under her belt. But the fantasy of the metropolitan life that she lives is full of contradictions. It's a great pleasure to introduce these two new writers from Vintage, so sit back, relax and enjoy. Joe, it's lovely to speak to you. First of all, can you give everyone a flavour of your book? You know, the world that it's set in, the characters and their own journeys. Mm. Um, three Rooms tracks um, a narrator whose living and material circumstances decline over three parts of the novel. Um, she starts out as a research assistant in Oxford on a fixed-term contract and a good enough wage that means she can um, rent accommodation. And then we move to her working as a copy editor in London for a glossy society magazine where the low wage and casual contract that she's on mean she's forced to couch surf. And um, the book ends with her unemployed on a train back to her parents house um not quite sure what to do next um and underpinning all of that uh is the news cycle between 2018 and 2019 where it pertained to domestic rights in England so things like Brexit phase one of the Grenfell Tower um fire inquiry and the rise in visible and invisible homelessness. Um, and all of those things are transmitted through various social media or digital technology so that the book is kind of constantly informed by the experience of 
looking at one's phone or um, checking Twitter, checking Instagram, um, sort of as you would in real life. The whole point, I guess, is to kind of question whether certain ideals for how life should be that um, are promoted but not necessarily made possible by various class and state superstructures, things like the nuclear family or a nine-to-five job or home ownership, um, whether they're still viable ideals to aspire to in an increasingly digitised gig economy um, for a generation like mine and successive ones. And it's very real, um, rooted in many of our experiences if we... um are obsessed with news um, Mm. and almost to the point that you don't really need to be obsessed with news really do you because a lot of those stories and a lot of those um, elements that you describe um, almost force their way into our lives because they were such big topics weren't they Mm. in some way or another you ended up reading about them you or you heard about them you heard about Grenfell there was non-stop news about Brexit and so on Mm. what motivated you to write the book well, I mean, as you say, that there was a kind of pervasiveness to that news cycle at the time. I think I first thought of writing something like it, it was slightly different um, at the beginning, around the end of May, um, which was when Theresa May uh, had stepped down as Prime Minister and there was suddenly this um, kind of influx of um, kind of neoconservative figures in the running for prime minister people that actually funnily enough now that I think about it you don't hear of very often Jeremy Hunt Michael Gove um but there was a kind of uh, obsessiveness to the way that that news was consumed the conservative party leadership of 2019 and the subsequent general election and um Brexit, which at the time was kind of what the pandemic is now. And the way that I ingested most of it was through a kind of um, desperation (laughs) from from my own cohort on Twitter about what the election of um, any of those men would mean for the material circumstances of our future. That was the point where momentum was in what we now know kind of it's not dying throes but they were sort of the last days of Jeremy Corbyn and um I just remember kind of ingesting all of this and at the time I I was working at a glossy society magazine um and I was living on a sofa I remember reading all of this and seeing people on Twitter my age kind of questioning what this would mean for our future but then looking at people sort of a decade older than me writing about the same news from not very dissimilar circumstances also you know on casual contracts or sort of grifting on freelance jobs living in a house full of sort of five strangers as London often forces you to do um it just sort of seemed to be the tone and tenor of the time I don't think I could have written anything different what did you want readers to feel from your book I I suppose if anyone could recognize any part of 
um, their life or even sort of a big term, but the state of the nation as it was in 2018 or 2019 in the book as true, then I'd, I'd be very happy with that. But I wouldn't prescribe any particular feeling to anyone reading it. And when did you finish writing the book? Oh, I finished it almost a year ago. I finished it in early March last year. So right on the cusp of the pandemic. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> I finished writing and then I took a week. I really regret this. I took a week to sort of um, let my brain drain out because I thought that afterwards I'd kind of be able to go and um, I, I suppose have fun because I'd been sat in one spot um, sat inside doing nothing funnily enough um, which was you know what what ended up happening for the foreseeable future um, I wish I'd taken that week to sort of go out and get lavishly drunk <laughs> and dance and <laughs> but I didn't I um I sat in bed and kind of it but that still felt really gratifying um it felt really momentous finishing that manuscript fantastic I know so many people are going to love this book uh, I, I really do and because it's it's captivating the the voice the tone is just so riveting for, for me and I hope that you know our readers kind of experience that as well um now at what stage are you at in your writing journey then Joe? um uh, well, I'm I'm writing a second book now. Um, it's um, it's still very early on, but it's really interesting um, to kind of pick out formally what I would accept as any kind of distinct writing voice for myself, and what happens to be a kind of verbal tick that I might rely on to. Um, keep prose flowing so I've noticed that I um, tend to pile on a lot of nouns in my writing that I then have to kind of judiciously cull or I'll leave a lot of kind of floating subordinate clauses around um, that I then have to link up to something so I think I'm still at the stage where I'm kind of trying to give myself as as much of a kind of rigorous formal training for fiction. I find it a lot easier to write non-fiction and I think once this second book is done um, I'll probably leave fiction alone for a while and, and turn to writing more non-fiction. I feel much more comfortable in an academic background. Definitely that's where my training was. Um, so I'll finish this book and then I think I'll give myself a break for two or three years. It feels like if I tried to attempt you know third novel straight after it would get quite monotonous in style i'm intrigued about um you perhaps considering going back to non-fiction just give us a little insight into your your academic life and what you might be considering are you, are you talking about journal journal articles and so on or mm, i well i had a really short-lived career as a journalist before the pandemic cut it off a lot of it was done through freelancing and so um sort of around the end of March, I received this slew of P60s um, from, um, from places that could no longer afford to, um, to keep me. But um, I, I really enjoyed 
book reviewing and the critical writing that I've done, I would really hope that by the end of this year I managed to apply for a PhD. Um, I, for most of my MA and um, a lot of my bachelor's, uh, sort of spent time updating literary and cultural theory from the 20th century to a 21st century context so that we could sort of find a language to talk more rigorously about how things like cultural worth and value were apportioned on the internet. Uh, so I'd like to keep on doing that. Um, recently I've been thinking about maybe writing some sort of history of um, women's non-writing and non-fiction rather and essay writing. Um, I think there's been a sort of trend that started around uh, maybe 2017 um, for literary non-fiction essay collections um, from people like Gia Tolentino or um, Sadie Smith, Pandora Sykes more recently. Um, and that stretches back to Joan Didion or um, I'd like to kind of trace that history a little bit more closely. Fantastic. So you've got you've got some plans laid out kind of, you know, obviously, you know, those plans can change and what have you. But it's great to hear that you've got ideas beyond even, you know, the, the novel that you're writing now. In terms of fiction novels, are there any recommendations that you might have for our readers? Any other writers who've inspired you more recently to to get on this fiction writing journey of yours? Mm, um, I have real trouble picking favourites. Um, there, there was a book that I read continuously um, while I was writing Three Rooms and it owes part of its title to it. Hannah Sullivan's Three Poems, published by Faber and won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2018, I think. And that's a really remarkable um, piece of work, a sort of collage of... Um, a lot of 20th century and even earlier writing, a lot of influences from Auden and Larkin. Um, and it also speaks really brilliantly about the integration of um, various technology. Sullivan talks more about how Facebook and computers might be used in personal life and office space. So in a sense, we've kind of moved on since then, but it's still a really beautiful um, piece of work um, and then I've got a really random catalogue of books popping into my head right now I spent the summer um, as often as I could in the British Library picking through Paul Gilroy's um, Between Camps um, that book argues for a kind of post-racial humanism, it was published in 2000 so it's the language it uses is kind of outdated now and it could definitely bear kind of very rigorous critical scrutiny in light of the past 20 years, but I think it's still full of incredible foresight. Um, I've just read Rebecca Watson's Little Scratch. Um, I think that was published last week, also by Faber, and it was phenomenal. Um, it's sort of... Um, it reminded me of Mr. Dalloway, uh, in a way. It looks at trauma over the course of a day, um, but really stretches that, that 
process out second by second um, in a remarkable way so that something as kind of mundane as glugging water is kind of infused with this sense of purpose. I thought that was so good. Um, yeah, I just, I've really random books are occurring to me. How many have I done now? Three? I think that's, that's three. <laughs> and what a perfect number for some brilliant suggestions. <laughs> Joe, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you. It has been superb hearing more about the book and your writing journey. And I um, we'll hope to meet you again very soon. Oh, thank you so much, Marlon. Anna, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, really excited about your book, An Experiment of Leisure. Can you give us a, a flavour of what the book is all about? Yes, I can. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Um, Mid-pandemic, but it's a beautiful blue day. So, as we've established. um, Yeah, so an experiment in leisure. I started out, I I, maybe let's start with the title because I um, am fundamentally a bit of a, not lazy, but a bit of a copycat. And uh, it's actually copied from uh, a title of a book that came out in 1937 called An Experiment in Leisure. And it's by a psycho, like a lesser known uh, psychoanalyst called Marion Milner. And um, I got really into her. Um, she wrote this book and um, an, a companion piece called A Life of One's Own. And it was her idea was that she'd sort of keep very detailed diaries of everyday life and just about the kind of sensuous pleasures and tastes and things that she liked. And then she'd use that as a basis for sort of working out who she is. I really like this because I've got very refined tastes. <laughs> I've managed to somehow come from a place where the sorts of tastes and appetites that I have for things in, in my life, um, I they've changed personally for me and for my character, Grace, that I, that I created. From, from And it sort of tells a tale of class, a sort of change in, in um, education and class and how those tastes have become refined. And I thought, this is a new way in for me for thinking about kind of what happened, what got me here? How did I, what, did, what, am I, what was I hungry for? What tastes do I have? Um, so in, in that book, I, the experiment in leisure is a method. It's a method for thinking about, um, and I remember opening it and it was sort of talking about, oh, I I'm, I'm, I'm seem to be thinking about those new shoes. It's like, I went to the shoe shop, she, she sort of says, I went to the shoe shop and I tried these shoes on and I really regret not buying them and I just can't stop thinking about the red shoes. And I'm like, that's me, I can see myself in that. So it started out as a very... Um, as a kind of experiment myself as a, a, in writing, I thought I'm just going to take really lovely descriptions for things that I like, but then sort of work out what that may, how it makes me feel and uh, personally. And then I realised that I could actually just have loads of fun creating a character who has a similar set of circumstances, who comes from a kind of quote-unquote working-class background um, in the North and finds that, the sort of life that she wants to build for herself isn't really possible there and so necessarily has to um, move to London. So it's that kind of regional social inequality becomes very dislocated necessarily so and works out 
how did she get here? What is she doing? Is it time to work, time to go home or where is home? Um, so that's my very long winded way of setting the, <laughs> setting it out. But I just loved that. I, I really love that title. I love the idea that because she's in her early 20s and um, I found it really liberating to think of tw- your life in your 20s as being an experiment, you know, because there's so much pressure, especially as a sort of in uh, millennial for the millennials, I think, and more so in uh, generations to come, I think, to have it have it down have it sorted be on be on be on it have your game on and I thought oh, it's not really how it's working for me so <laughs> you know that's really interesting you know it 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 doesn't work for everybody and 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 the times that we live in right now it's impossible for this you know for us to have our game sorted in any way shape or form um you know and obviously since the pandemic the world's been turned upside down but you know there's so many different forces against people that it's hard to have um life sorted and anyway why should we you know what 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 where has this pressure come from i'm really interested to know then you know what drove you to write this book as well as obviously being influenced by um the book of the same name you know from 1937 what what drove you what motivated you well what i'd realized was I, i think um i had to hoodwink myself into writing this book because if i'd said to myself right here's what we're doing we're gonna write a book I'd be so detached from and so frightened by what that would mean and that the mechanics of doing that, the time and space that you require to do so, so so it just seems so impossible or I kind of managed to get those means, but they were so untenable that I had to pretend it was just a kind of, um, pretend I wasn't writing it because then the pressure would be too much, you know? So I... What motivated me was that because I, I I tapped into that and I thought, but why not? Why not me? Why why couldn't I write this? Why couldn't I make make a sort of why can't I daydream in in public <laughs> and make a character and producer <laughs> and put her out in the world and have us have a look and have a try and have mm-hmm. a see? Um, but in order to, but so the motivation was, um, and I guess the motivation is that I I you know it starts to sound quite it's quite a familiar story but it's true I mean I didn't I didn't read northern characters I mean everyone would be like oh but there's the Brontes I'd be like what when sorry how long's it been <laughs> um apart from like Jeanette Winterson I, I suppose comes up like comes to mind but there's and there's Midlands there's a lot there's a strong kind of Midlands thing going on um I was like where are my Leodensians you know where are my Yorkshire lasses and I couldn't find them I could find Alan Bennett and maybe Richard Hoggart. And I, but I remember reading, um, I read Lindsay Hanley's Respectable and I, it just blew my mind and I thought, oh, we can do this because her analysis is a sort of non-fiction analysis of what the cost of sort of crossing that class divide or the costs of social mobility emotionally. And what you do if you educate, you put aspirations in a person and educate them and um, then what they're going to do with that education, you know, because they're between two worlds and two sets of values and systems. And um, so it became, what first became just a sort of feeling of unease and a feeling of dislocation and a sort of... um, being unseen or invisible in some way then became um, that motivation to write it. And also because I, Brexit actually, Brexit was a big thing for me because I realised that this feeling of, of uh, unease in this kind of metropolitan life that I'd 
bought up, bought into. Be like, oh, I can do this. Yeah, London, London town. Yeah, great. And I got here and I thought, I can't really afford this. I can't afford it. It's too expensive. <laughs> so I um I wanted to create. I wanted it to create a sort of love letter to the people that to the to the people that I you know the sorts of people that I grew up with, like my. The sorts of they're not my um the characters in my book are not my actual like they're not my family they're just i'm playing but you know there are traces of reality in there and i thought i don't see people like this being represented unless it's a sort of comedy of manners unless they're being like taken up taken down i'm like don't hate down come on let's uplift let's let's say yeah what, what's nana and granddad got to say like what's what's my mum got to say <laughs> so I created these characters in order to as a kind of love letter to say love you and like what you stand for is great and it, let's not caricature it as like Levy or Romani or what let's see if we can talk um sorry the characters that's very... no Sound no like I'm beautiful. getting on my political platform but yeah <laughs> it was it was just very it crystallized something for me and I thought yeah, what have I bought in for here? Because I can see why people would say would want be inclined towards the remain feeling, and I can see why people would 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 want half and home and the telly and pleasures and com- the comforts of home and feelings of community and being embedded. And we could, can't we have both? It's really interesting, you know, and what you say will resonate with so many listeners and and readers of your book will find because obviously I've had a little dive in, okay. (laughs) The characters are so vivid. The dialogue is so vivid. You are quite literally taken on those, you know, inverted commas, journey. You're taken on a journey through locations, down streets. I'm walking along the road with Grace, right? I feel like I'm walking with her, right next to her. Every room that she's in, every interaction that happens is so vivid, Anna, um, and there's a pace and a speed with which everything happens, which I which I find is just um, it's just captivating. It's like you're on this journey and you can't you can't get off this this <laughs> whole wheel. Um, and so you know, I mentioned journey, quite literally, journey and location are very strong and dominate in the book. And and like you said, the the emotional cost almost of being working class in the north going to London, trying to make it, trying to do the best that you can. There's so much of a swirl of everything in um, the book. Did you, do you think, fulfil what you originally set out with the book to kind of cover these areas? Was there a deliberate nature around what you wanted to um, tell the reader through Grace? Yeah, I'm really pleased that, you enjoy it or like well enjoy I know it's a frenetic old read I, I kind of journeys the word you know because I wanted to write something that would just if you're on if you're stuck in on a train and us before this covid situation hit hit hard I spent a lot of time on trains I spent a lot of time on the um like north like the LNER Spent a lot of time at King's Cross and St Pancras moving between Sheffield and Leeds and the locations of my book. Um, so it's kind of, it's a, it's a, she moves just to give a, a feeling for it. Grace, she's, she's sort of, we, we, we find her in London. She's, she's, she's between these places. So she does spend a lot of time 
um, buying Pret coffees in uh, in uh, station concourses and needing a wee, but she can't go for a wee because the queue's too long and she needs to get on the train and there's a lot of journeying going on. But that was my that was kind of my life as well. And uh, there's the kind of peace and quiet that you get when you can't get on the internet on a train. I mean, you just got to write, haven't you? Because what else can you do? Um, that those journeys. Yeah, that was that was my intention was to bring that feeling around of, of deep place, of deep of a deep feeling of um, what these places are like because they're so easily caricatured if you don't go deep and you don't go into the sensory sensuous feelings around that. And I guess I wanted to write a sort of companion for for a reader to say, here's this really absorbing, like quite frenetic, intense character that I've created. And um, you know, if you are stuck for two hours because there's flooding like have a have a read I hope you enjoy, <laughs> enjoy it and um yeah I suppose um yeah it's um my my relationship and Grace's relationship with the material world is really important because I do it's about for me it's a kind of again it's a sort of um it's the caricature of the millennial who spends all their money on avocado or you know all the kind of judgments and the way we crucify people for the taste that they have you know like why you know why does this person this person spend all their disposable money on a massive tv or a skybox or it's so judgmental and I kind of think actually isn't that all we have we just like to we like to just make nice little worlds for ourselves and pleasures and comforts and I think so I wanted a book that was full of that sort of stuff and objects and that's important to me as well because it becomes a kind that's the kind of Grace has got this expensive education she's been to Cambridge she's got all the words and but she's so she doesn't have a language to talk to the people she's left she's left and she's left a part of herself behind and she's lost a language and she needs to get it back but she finds a language with those objects so she realizes the way to talk to the sister character or the mother character is by buying buying the mum a costa coffee muffin or or um doing her sister's hair for her with the with the ghds you know in that methodical giving love through these sensuous things and finding other languages because that makes me think about you know the kind of polarized situation we're in now politically and I think is there another way we can talk to each other um with with stuff with touch and feeling yeah do you know and, and you're talking about you know finding ways to to speak to one another really um it feels so important that we have to find a way to navigate and to find the best language to use because that feels like that is a route to being more peaceful about the the worlds that we might inhabit mm. um you know and because if you don't find that language then it's you're in a constant state of unease yeah i think you yeah. know um and it feels very much like you know grace has found it or has found it hard to reconcile like you say her different lives her life at home and life in London. Um, and I can imagine, can't you, Anna, that there are there are so many hundreds and thousands of people in this country who have probably experienced that 
you know, because of uh, this desire for social mobility, this need for social mobility, right? As I'm mm. moving around, moving for job, you know, having to go, yeah, I've got to go to London to earn more money and what have you. And it's, it's um, I think when readers, you know, get hold of your book, there's going to be a lot that people will be just sitting back and going, gosh, yeah, this is so like what's happened to me. <laughs> I think so many people are going to resonate with it, honestly. You, you say obviously that the, that the book was inspired by an original from 1937. What other authors' books at the moment have inspired you? Any recommendations you can give to us? Yeah, I'm reading a lot of um, Muriel Spark at the moment. I just think she's she's. It, it's not a particularly original recommendation, but I find her because her books are quite short and her books and hilarious. I'm like this. They just make me laugh. So I'm in, I'm in a bit of light relief in lockdown. I'm also reading. Um, the uh, it's a it's a um portrait of Edie Edie Sedgwick um by by an American writer called Jean Stein who just took lots of it's a documentary in the form of a book um so there's a lot it's just loads of oral snippets of what she was like by people that she knew and she's just from this incredibly eccentric family and that just is a port an, a portrait of a woman who's kind of who kind of didn't get away like didn't get through her 20s and was troubled but had such beauty had a beautiful kind of voice in her and talent of her own and how she kind of got chewed up by that system and could have could have made her own art and was ambitious and interesting and um it's gorgeous because he just got all these voices um and it's so unusually structured so I really like I, I would it's been my favorite book this year it's a vintage book um so Edie by Jean Stein, um, Muriel Spark, and Stuart Hall, Familiar Stranger. Yeah. There's a there's a video on YouTube through through the prism of an intellectual life. It's like it's free, and um, that just I've never felt so. Talking about kind of intellectual dislocation and all sorts of di- different types of dislocations, and how we can use our education and take our personal experience and understand it as something political and historic it just can't say enough yeah Anna thank you so so much it's been brilliant spending time with you thanks so much thank you Thank you for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing about these two exciting new debut voices. You can find out more about Three Rooms by Joe Hamier and An Experiment in Leisure by Anna Glendening in the episode description. Now, do you have any other debut novels to recommend to us? We would love to hear from you. You can let us know by tagging us at Vintage Books on Twitter or Instagram. And whatever you do, please keep reading boldly and thinking differently. Until next time.